0: Remember, this week is the week that uh, Chafer Seminary begins its registration for the spring semester, and that goes for the next three weeks, but if you register between now and, and uh, next Monday, then your registration fee is waived, and since as a member of West Houston Bible Church, that you can take up to two courses tuition-free, normally it is the only thing you pay for is your registration that's waived if you register ahead of time. Uh, there are course flyers on the back table. Also, we posted the new 2022 DBM Bible Reading Challenge, but you can read through the Bible this year and choosing whatever version that you wish. I think a few weeks ago I mentioned a pastor I know who had never quite made it through any given year. And. Um, he told me about a week ago that he actually finally completed it in, uh, in this year. So uh, you just keep plugging away, and you will get there. Also, the annual congregational meeting is for February the 6th, immediately following the morning, uh, the morning worship service. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer while I'm um, getting set up up here and a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in a right relationship with the Lord and that you are walking by the Spirit and, if necessary, confess sin in silent prayer to the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful we can come into your presence this evening and that we can um, study your word, be refreshed, encouraged, that your word will shed light upon the world around us. And we're reminded from James that friendship with the world is enmity toward you and that the wisdom of the world is, uh, is earthly and it is soulish and it is demonic and that we are not to be conformed to the world. So, Father, as we study tonight, it may challenge the thinking of some of those who listen uh, to the lesson, but we must remember that this is the Word of God, and we have to come to understand that this is God's uh, design and God's intent. Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand these things and see how to apply them in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we started getting into a number of important areas in our study of uh, judges, although for right now we're engaged in a study within a study. And we do this uh, on occasion when we hit a particular subject or topic within the framework of a book that may or may not be understood very well by most people. And as we got into the study of Judges 4 and 5, we saw that uh, Deborah is identified as both a judge over Israel and a prophetess. And it's important to understand what a ju- the role of a judge was, and it's also important to understand the role of a prophet and also the distinctions between a prophet and a prophetess, which we covered as we went through that passage. And so the other side always tends to go to that this one example first and foremost when they are dealing with issues related to the role of women in ministry, the role of women in relation to the pastorate. And this has been a problem that, uh, that evangelical churches have faced and handled poorly in many ways uh, since the early 70s. In fact, when I was with a group of uh, potential seminary students, I met with a pastor on a weekly basis, and one of the things he brought up which had never crossed any of our minds was the fact that this was going to be a major problem in the years to come and a major battle, and that we were going to have to decide what we believe the Scripture taught in this particular area, and he was he was exactly right. And there is so much confusion about the role of the sexes. And I'm particularly avoiding, for reasons I've explained previously, the use of the word gender as a synonym for the the sex differences between male and female. So we're engaged in this study within a study, and I've entitled tonight's lesson, Function Drives Form. What I mean by that is God's design for the function or the role of the male and the female was the reason they have the forms, the biology, the physiology that they do. And so we'll explain that as we go through Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We'll be reviewing some things there and then getting into Judges 2, uh, 18 to 25. And what we have seen in our study is that in the book of Judges, we see a portrayal of Israel. This is a paradigm for any nation that is spiritually focused. And Israel at the beginning is spiritually focused. They are uh, victorious. They are trusting God. They are uh, in a Position of military conquest over the Canaanites, these pagan, uh, their wor- worshipers of Baal and Asherah, and all of the uh, nature uh, gods and goddesses, which, as I pointed out recently, uh, is just uh, is always expressed within the framework of monism, and I'll review that as we go along, but. Um, Israel starts off as a God-trusting, militarily victorious nation at the beginning, and they are transformed into a pagan, idol, and nature-worshiping, perverted culture by the end of the book. And we have a lot of lessons that we learn here, and the difference between the culture of Judges 1, where they are trusting God and they have been victorious, and the culture of Genesis uh, 21 is exemplified in the last verse of the book. It's quoted, uh, actually quoted twice or stated twice in Judges, but here at the end of the book, we are reminded that in those days, that is, at that time, there was no king in Israel. But remember, the king that they had was God, it was a theocracy and God was to be their their king but they rejected God they abandoned God in the language of these uh, of the initial chapters they abandoned God and they sold themselves as slaves to the worship of the uh, nature gods worshiping uh, the stars worshiping uh, the storms worshiping the gods of uh, uh, of nature, the god uh, goddess of the earth, all of these things were part of it. And we see the same thing today in the modern ecology movement, and so there is this shift in the culture, and the shift is from a God-based understanding of who they were and what their purpose was to a man-based view. Uh, I've referred to this. Uh, in the past, as uh, an ancient version of postmodernism and moral relativism. And it is that. But there is a, a political scholar uh, today in America by the name of Yuval Levin. And he is an American political analyst who is the founding editor of the journal National Affairs. And he's also the director of the Social. Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I've run across him. In fact, he had an outstanding book on Edmund Burke that he has published, and he's done a number of other things. But he has written in the book The Fractured Republic, where he describes what we see on the horizon, or see in our culture, rather, as expressive individualism. That's his term for uh, the postmodern relativism that we see. And he makes this statement, and I thought this is so uh, such a good a- a description of our modern culture. He says, the ethic of our age has been aptly called expressive individualism. That term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. What he's saying there is that at the core, we have, everybody's pursuing their own path. How did judges put it? They're doing what's right in their own eyes. They're pursuing their own path and they yearn for fulfillment through defining their own meaning and purpose and identity. All this identity crisis, all of this stuff with identity politics and uh, sexual identity confusion it is all part of that. He said it is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. And so that explains what's happening in the LGBTQ movements and in the transgender movement, that you have to not only uh, accept who you are, but you have to exploit who you are. He goes on to say, "...the capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly identified or equated with liberty." So, if you talk to people on that side, you're talking about freedom and liberty, this is what they hear. They hear that you are talking about their freedom to assert their own identity, uh, whatever they want to define it as, and give themselves whatever meaning and purpose uh, they want to invent out of thin air. The capacity of individuals to define the, the terms of their own existence. By defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights, and it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. And he goes on from there. That is in his book, The Fractured Republic. Now, that's a good description of a culture that, has, uh, that believes that human identity and meaning Including the falsely labeled gender identity, is self-determined and not God-determined. This was articulated in a Supreme Court decision in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Justice uh, Supreme Court Justice Arth- Anthony Kennedy said. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, just think about that. Uh, th- that is pure arrogance, that, that he defines liberty as the uh, right to define your concept of existence, of meaning of, the un- uh, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So you can be whatever you think you want to be and exploit it as much as you want to. Now, at the heart of this kind of philosophy that is dominating our culture today is the idea that the purpose of life is to discover one's deepest self. I guess you go off into the desert somewhere and gaze at the lint in your navel until you have an apotheosis, and then you can go forward. But that's the idea. You have to uh, discover your deepest self and to express that to the world. And you express it through all the social media, Facebook and all of the other things, and that's what people do. And... um, uh, and then to forge that in ways that may contradict whatever your family or friends or tradition or religious authorities might say. What happens is you create your own identity and you define the meaning of life itself and it's all about you. It's all about the self. You remember back in, um, back in the 70s they came out with the magazine still around called People. And then about a decade later, they came out with a magazine called Us. And then it wasn't long after that when they came out with another magazine called Self. And this just tracked with the trajectory and the change of the worldview. It's all about me. It's all about what I think, and everybody else has to conform to what I think. Now, the problem with that is... You can't have a successful culture on that basis if everybody's just absolutely flying off in every direction and there's absolutely no basis for unity. It's the polar opposite of what was the foundation for Western civilization. Western civilization wasn't founded on the Druids and it wasn't founded on the tree worshipers in uh, in the area of Germany. It wasn't uh, founded on the... Uh, Worship of Thor and the Norse gods or the Greek gods or the Roman gods. Paganism ruled supreme across Europe. And what changed Europe, what transformed Europe into something that was remarkable, that has achieved what no other uh, nations have achieved in the history of the world, was biblical Christianity and it uh, transformed it from uh, from all of the pagan uh, gods and goddesses to Roman Catholicism, which got sort of partway out of the issue, but they understood uh, some of the truths were understood clearly. And then with the Reformation, it got more biblical. Then uh, after the Enlightenment, there were various uh Uh, revivals. I think some were honest-to-goodness revivals. You had uh, the reforms of Wesleyanism to a large degree. You also had other reforms in England during the 19th century in British evangelicalism. And then uh, you had the developments of a solid biblical base here in the United States. And our whole understanding the bedrock of Western civilization and all of the stability that we've had, all of the prosperity that we have had, all of the advances in technology that we have had were all grounded on a Judeo-Christian worldview, that God created all things. God was distinct from his creation. And because God's, God was a God of order, that creation showed that, reflected that, And therefore creation or nature could be studied and analyzed and we could come to understand it and develop uh, laws and uh, theories and predictions that things would always work the same way. So that every time you put an airplane out on the tarmac with the right kind of fuel and the right kind of design and you get to a certain velocity, it's going to take off. And, and that's because God is a God of order. And that never developed in the East. That never developed in China. And that never developed uh, in India. And that never developed among the Mongols. It just, uh, n- they never had that base. It's only on the basis of Judeo Christianity that we believe that uh, all things were created by God who designed everything down to the minutest detail. And he created the human race as we saw last time. He created the human race to be a finite representation of himself, that he was delegating to the human race the responsibility to be the overlords, to be the uh, rulers over his creation, to uh, take care of his creation, to be the custodians of his creation, and that's fundamental to understanding uh, what God is saying in the scriptures in Genesis one twenty six uh, to twenty eight uh, god 's creation wasn 't random, it wasn't um, uh, just just um, uh, just thoughts that he just came to his mind and said, oh let 's try this and let 's try that. it wasn't on the basis of, of chance." Or anything like that, but it was clearly uh, thought out and well, well designed. And God's creation is the way it is, uh, in order to enable the human race. The way He created it at the beginning was to enable the human race to prosper and to flourish in a secure and uh, a secure environment. But it is sin that came along. And because of man's willful disobedience to God, it brought uh, corruption into God's creation. It brought corruption into the identity of the man, the identity of the woman. It corrupted their relationship with each other. It corrupted their relationship with uh, God's creation All of this has to be taken into account to understand how we got to the point where we are. And what we learn from all of that is that when we ignore God's design and purpose in order to assert our own self-will over against God's will, then it may lead to some short-term pleasure or satisfaction. But in the end, it ends up in destruction. And this is exactly what Proverbs says in two places in Proverbs 14:12 and in Proverbs 16:25 There is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death That is such a profound scripture There's a way that seems right to us we say oh it would be so fair if That would be so good if. But words like fair and good are words that presuppose some sort of absolute standard. And that standard either comes from God or it doesn't. And when it doesn't come from God, it appears it feels right. And it it appeals to our sentimentality. But its end is death. So God's design is not there to restrict us. It's not there to restrain us. It's not there in order to uh, cause life to be something of a problem for us, but it is there in order to give us uh, the opportunity to make the best out of uh, what God has ordained for us. When we ignore his design and his purpose to express our own will, it just destroys us. And that's the message of Judges. When a culture wants to define itself apart from God, then relativism and unrestrained individualism takes over, and that destroys uh, uh, the culture. We saw earlier in this study that historically there are only two options. The two options are either God's way or man's way. It's either the Bible or the Tower of Babel. It's either uh, God's way of life or it's the way of death. This is what Moses says, uh, and Joshua said it. Choose today uh, the path of life or the path of death. Those are the only two options. And the path of the Bible, the path of God, Path of a biblical worldview is the way to life, but the other way, which seems right to a man, is the way to death. This is what produces paganism, and that's the theme in judges is the paganization of the culture, the leadership, the people, and the priests. And all of this goes back to understanding a worldview that all thought begins with our understanding of ultimate reality. And that ultimate reality is either the creator God of the universe or it's something within God's creation that we have idolized. And then the next area is the area of knowledge. How do we know truth? And how do we get our knowledge of values and our knowledge of what life should be? And when we get to that point, we're dealing with ethics and answering these questions about right or wrong And that, in turn, leads to individual decisions and political decisions. It all comes out of our worldview. Everybody has a worldview. I remember many, many years ago talking to uh, someone, and they said, well, I'm just not a philosopher. I said, yeah, you are. Everybody's got a philosophy of life. Some of them, it's a disorganized, unsophisticated, random, thrown-together philosophy of life. And others have a well-thought-out philosophy of life, but everybody has a worldview, everybody has a philosophy of life, and it's either going to be one that is uh, self-consciously built on the Bible, or it's, or it's not. And so this leads us to what we studied at the beginning, which is man in his negative volition to God exchanged the truth of God for the lie. There's a worship exchange And he serves the creature rather than the creator. He worships the creature rather than the creator. And historically, this was developed in the ancient world uh, in in the uh, concept of the great chain of being. And in that great chain of being, everything that is in the universe, including God, is all within this this pyramid. You know how the New Agers love pyramids. And so all within this pyramid, God's at the top and the geophysical environments at the bottom, the earth, but all this shares in the same essence. And so everybody has a spark of the divine in them. That's where this idea comes from. And that just goes back to pure monism because what this is saying is that everything is one. And we looked at a number of quotes on that, that monism is the idea that all reality shares the same essence or essential nature or being to one degree or another. And when many people talk about God, listen carefully. And sometimes you're going to see it where their view of God is God is just part of the universe. Other times you'll hear people make statements, well, this is what will please the universe. I always want to ask Does the universe have a soul? Does it have intelligence? Does it have pleasure? Does it have will? Or how, how do rocks and flaming stars have any of those characteristics? That's pretty silly when you think about it. Pagan monism eradicates the barriers that God created. And they want to say there's no barriers between the sexes. In fact, there aren't two sexes. There are, they call them genders, and they say there's, there's, I don't know, somebody said recently they've got it up to 120-something genders now that you can choose from. You can create your own reality, and one day you can be one. Another day you can be something else. Every hour you can change, make people guess what the right pronoun is, and send all your friends to jail because they use the wrong pronoun if you live in New York. Uh, so this, is th- this comes out of that kind of a worldview. But on the other hand, biblical Christianity believes that God created those barriers, and they're not just there because God wants to spoil uh, your fun. They're there because they're designed to keep us in bounds. And so it is when we're in bounds that we are going to, as human beings, be able to excel and be able to succeed. And so I keep putting these charts up here so that we're reminded of them. Uh, in the biblical view, which is on the left side of the chart, you have the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who exists as a personal infinite creator. And there's a hard black uh, rectangle underneath that separating and uh, distinguishing God from his creation, the finite universe, which is made up of human beings, animals, vegetation, and matter and energy. Uh, They do not share the same essence or being as God. On the right side, you have within the circle Uh, The pagan view, that everything participates in the same being, so everything is within in that circle, and that is often expressed by a yin-yang symbol, uh, which ultimately everything is one, even though some things seem to be white and some things seem to be black, because there's this white or black uh, circle within the opposite color. The purpose is to show that it's all one. Everything is one. And I just love this quote from uh, Accia Grossa in The Joy of Sex. And that is that he says, under and through each of the great traditions, what he means by that is all the great philosophical traditions and religious traditions runs a stream, a single stream that feeds each of these traditions with a single source, the perennial philosophy, and that's nature worship. That's what Paul faced all the time when he's going from city to city and they have the temples to Diana and the temple to uh, Aphrodite and the temple to Zeus. Uh, Those are all forms of nature worship. They're all expressions of monism. And then he says that, that this perennial philosophy is a system that seeks to break down duality. Breaking down duality one duality is male and female. That's the objective, to break down this duality and return us to a unitive condition, one. And we'll have some, I have some other quotes at the end to show where that goes. So we started by looking at what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood. And one of the things that, that we need to be careful of is that we're talking about biblical manhood and womanhood. We don't have very good examples in history of this. And sometimes people think, oh, you're just a traditionalist. You just want things to be uh, like they were in the 50s or the 40s or the 30s. No, not at all. They didn't do it all right. They were corrupted by sin. That's not the pattern. It's not the pattern to go back to the Victorian family. It's not the fa- pattern to go back to the Puritan family. Those are not the standards. They all were sinners, and they did things wrong. We all are pursuing an ultimate standard, which is what the Scripture says, which is, means that we should be not looking back as to how others did it and try to duplicate that, but to go forward uh, working on an uh, application of the Scripture. So what I want to do, and this is not going to be accomplished tonight, but this was how I st- set out my notes when I started working on them, is to do what we've just done to some degree and do a little more, is reviewing Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then address the question, does equal mean interchangeable? That's a very important question because if you talk to 99.999 ad infinitum percent of the people out there they will all say yes equal means interchangeable that is the underlying unspoken assumption of so many of these of these movements but the bible does not says that there's equality but it is not you don't have interchangeable parts and so we're going to look at the hidden agenda of interchangeableness And then we'll probably not get into the next section, which is just looking at some of the, uh, just a few of the psychological or the physiological differences between men and women. And we'll get to Genesis 2 a little bit as we develop this, but we certainly won't get down to Genesis 3.15. So what we see in Genesis one twenty six to 28 is really the benchmark passage. It's in Genesis 1. We're going to come to Genesis 2 later on. Now, I don't know that not all of you were here last Thursday night when I was talking and teaching about the Bible in this series on Has God Spoken? But the topic last Thursday night was a higher criticism of the Bible and specifically the documentary hypothesis or the JEDP theory. And one of the major planks in their view is that Genesis 1 was written by one person about 950 B.C., and Genesis 2 was written by somebody else around, um, actually Genesis 1 would have been written later, it would have been written about, about 650 or 700 B.C., And Genesis 2, because it uses the name Yahweh, would have been written about 950 B.C. And so these are two different creation accounts, and we can't put them together. Now, that theory sowed the seeds of doubt, and it destroys confidence in these first two chapters of the Bible. And we're going to see why that was so important. That was a strategy that came straight from the devil. Destroy the historicity and the veracity of Genesis 1 and 2 so that then you can destroy marriage and you can destroy family. But once you, uh, as long as Genesis 1 and 2 are believed to be accurate and true, then you're not going to be able to destroy marriage and the family. So in these three verses, God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. Of course, I believe the plural indicates the Trinity. There are a lot of different views out there as to why there's a plural there, a plural of majesty, a plural of emphasis, but we know that... um, that there is a triune God and there's no reason to exclude that as being uh, embedded within those plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he's going to make us in his image. Why? Why? On this verse, it is so that we would have dominion over all of the creatures and all of God's creation. And then that's his plan, verse 26. Then you have the plan put into action in verse 27. So God created man, and here it's Adam, but it would be referring to mankind, the human race created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's a clear statement that God created a binary uh, sexuality from this verse. Male and female, there's, there's two. There's not 70, there's not 100, there's not 120, there's not even three. There's two, male and female, God created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the last part of that. Sometimes it's called the dominion mandate. I don't like that because that always seems to go towards dominion theology. It's the creation mandate. When God created man, he gives this mandate to man. But what's the first part of this command? Be fruitful and multiply. That's not the third, fourth, or fifth. That's the first. And what is that related to? If you took out the verse indicators and everything else. It would say male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He had to create them male and female in order to that they would be able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is God's intent is for man to fill the earth. I'll talk some more about that in a minute. Now, A lot of people say, well, that's the Old Testament. And we're not really sure if Moses wrote it or somebody wrote chapter one, somebody else wrote chapter two. And so these, these really, you can't go there for any kind of authority. Really. Do you think Jesus would be an authority that you might accept? We'll go to the New Testament. In Matthew 19, 3, The Pharisees are trying to set up a trap to get Jesus to contradict the law. And so they have this big conflict within their ranks as to whether what, what are exactly the conditions for divorce. And that's the overall topic of this passage, but that's not what we're here to look for. When Jesus answers their question, he does an interesting thing. He begins with his answer. He says, have you not read? Of course, they have read. They've memorized most all of the Torah, so they know it well. So Jesus is really sort of taking his thumb out and pushing it into their eye because he knows they've read it, they've memorized it, and they've debated it. So he says, he's really saying, you've done all of that, and you still don't understand it. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, that's a direct quote from Genesis 1:27. That's the first part of the creation narrative. Remember, we've got two chapters, and the modern intellectuals say that they're, well, they were written hundreds of years apart. Uh, Genesis 1 is written... Um, uh, much uh, later in Genesis 2 is the original account, and then somebody put them together. You don't really have to believe it. It's just a legend to give, uh, make us feel good about human beings. And then Jesus goes on to say, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that's a quote from the second to last verse in Genesis chapter 2. So you have Genesis chapter 2 connected with Genesis chapter 1, and Jesus uses both of them uh, as equal in authority, that they define the purpose of marriage. So that's an important verse to understand. Jesus affirms the historicity and the scriptural authority of Genesis uh, chapter 1. And the words that are translated male and female in the Hebrew uh, are simply the Hebrew terms for these two sexes, male and female. They're used for animals, male and female, and they're used for human beings. Uh, And human beings are not animals. Remember, you only get human beings as animals uh, if you're a Darwinist, if you believe in evolution what distinguishes human beings from animals is that we're created in the image and likeness of God. So we are not animals. Never make that mistake. I want, that's one of those things that, um, that they slip into our education to get us uh, thinking the way they uh, they want, want us to think. So when we look at this, I want to cover about, uh, in a little different way than I did last week, I want to cover eight different points. First of all, uh, let me see. We'll go back here to Genesis 1, and 27. And the issue here is the image of God. This is not talking about our physical bodies. It's often used as it is in Psalm 39, 6 to refer to the uh, inner man, our soul, our immaterial uh, nature. So we see that God is making us in his image. So first point is that God specifically made the human race with a binary sexuality, and human beings cannot undo that. We can try as hard as we want. You can fantasize. You can take all kinds of drugs. You can go to doctors. You can get surgery, but you're still one or the other, and that's determined by biology and not how you think. God specifically made the human race. He intentionally designed us to be the way we are. And it is the first and most important thing that is emphasized is that binary sexuality. And the reason for that is in point two. The human race was made that way for a purpose so that they could have children to fulfill the purpose stated in the two verses surrounding Genesis one twenty seven. They are to, uh, if we look at those verses, God said, "Let us make man, the human race, in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, and the birds, and the cattle, etc." And then after he states that he's going to create them, male and female, in his image, he blesses them and says, "Be fruitful and multiply." Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. After God had created all of the animals and fish and birds, and he placed two human beings there, it's impossible for those two human beings to fulfill the mandate to subdue the earth. In order to fulfill the mandate to subdue the earth, they need more human beings. And so they were designed from the get-go to procreate and replicate. And when they replicate, they are going to replicate after, uh, after the image that God uh, created them in. So God creates them in His image for the purpose of representing Him and having dominion over His creation. The third point is that the image and likeness in Adam was designed uh, to be passed, I I should have been P-A-S-S-E-D, passed on to succeeding generations. Even though that image was corrupted by sin, it was not erased. Okay? So God creates him in that image, when they sin, they're corrupted, but the image is not erased, it's just effaced. Genesis 5, 1 through 3. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. That's reiterating Genesis one uh, twenty seven. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind, Adam, in the day they were created. So what we see here is at the conclusion of this section, we see a reiteration of what is said in Genesis one twenty-six to 28. In verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years, and begot a son in his own likeness. What Moses wants us to understand is that that image, that which distinguishes every human being is that they're in the image of God is passed on from generation to generation so that we are all in the image of God, uh, effaced as it may be, corrupted as it may be. So the conclusion is that God's desire, based on what God intended the human race to do, to rule over the earth, God's desire was a sexually binary human race. That's the conclusion. Not three, not 50, not 120, but only two. And anything other than that is just trying to create your own reality and act like, your God. Who was tempted with that? If you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit and be like him. Well, what we have is all these people running around trying to out-God God, but they're neither omniscient nor omnipotent, and so they can't do it. They can just destroy their lives. Fifth, on the basis of what we've just seen, Uh, what God said of Adam and Eve, the first human beings were, uh, what he said of Adam and Eve, the first human beings, was true of all successive generations. What God said of Adam and Eve was true of all successive generations. The sixth point is that nothing in Genesis 1, 26 to 31, suggests even remotely that the woman participates any less in the creation mandate than the male. They are equally in the image of God, and they are equally responsible for fulfilling the mandates of Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 28. That takes us to point 7. Just a summary of what is said in, in this whole structure. The progression of is that God created the human race in his image so that the human race, male and female, could together exercise dominion of living things. And in addition, he created them male and female so the human race could increase and fill the earth. And that is done through procreation. The next point, which Gives us a transition to chapter two is that Genesis one does not talk about the roles of male and female or their differences. That's not its purpose. It is a summary. All that is said in Genesis one twenty-five to twenty, or yes, uh, twenty-six to twenty-eight, is that God creates the human race and He creates them male and female. That's on the sixth day. Chapter 2 comes along in typical Hebrew narrative style with a summary first and then fills in the blanks and gives us the details in the next chapter. That happens many, many times. Sometimes it's just the first verse is giving us that overview, and then the rest of the chapter gives us the details, uh, something like that. But that's what we have here, Genesis 1 does not talk about the roles of male and female or their differences. The other side attempts to say that Genesis 1 tells us that he just creates the male and female. There's no role distinctions. There's no differentiation. That's a better creation story than Genesis 2. Remember, they're written by different people 300 years apart. And so we're going to go with Genesis 1, and there's no differences between men and women. That, that's, that's, uh, there's no basis for that at all. Uh, Genesis 2 is what develops the details of how he created uh, the man and the woman in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1 states the purpose for the human race as a whole. Genesis 2 fills in the details and gives us how he created the man. He makes him from the chemicals of the soil. And then he's going to give him uh, uh, some uh, responsibilities, but the responsibilities are designed to make him aware of the fact that that all of the animals— have counterparts, male and female. There's not a single animal in the animal kingdom that has more than one sex. They're all male and female. And he's going to come to the conclusion because his IQ was probably somewhere north of 200. And his IQ was uh, pretty, pretty high because he was created perfect. It may have been exceptionally high. Much higher than we can imagine, but what he he realizes pretty quick is there's not a counterpart for him. Every other, every animal rather has a counterpart. So this is and, and 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 in the details that are given is to teach about the creation of the male and the female, so that we can understand that the idea of division of labor was embedded in the original perfect creation. That there is a responsibility given to the man and there's a responsibility given to the woman and the leadership responsibility was for the man. Which brings up the question that uh, we talked about, ended with last time, and that is, does equal mean interchangeable? And equal does not mean interchangeable, but we're going to see what it does mean. And we'll talk about the hidden agenda of interchangeableness as well as the differences between men and women. We probably won't get to that until next time. So remember last time I started with a quote from the beginning of an article that that C.S. Lewis wrote, about priestesses in the church. And he was concerned because this was in the 1950s and the Anglican church was beginning to uh, give some credence to the idea that they should ordain women to the priesthood. So what he writes and what he says must be understood within the ecclesiology of the Anglican church. And his basic argument was that if you... Uh, If you change the essence of something, remember he used that illustration from the ball and the character from Pride and Prejudice who said, well, if we just didn't do any dancing and we just had conversation, I would enjoy balls a lot more. But since dancing is what makes a ball a ball, uh, by changing some aspect of it, it makes it something completely different. And that's what he's saying is that the church is designed by God to have male leadership, and if you introduce uh, female leadership, then it's no longer the church that God designed; it's something else. So he goes on, and a little later in his um, in his article, he uh, tries to expo- oh, expose or not and try to he does he exposes the fallacy of the principle that equal means interchangeable. And so this is spread out over uh, more than one slide. He says, Lady Nunburnholm has claimed that the equality of men and women is a Christian principle. Now, Lady Nunberholm was an aristocrat who was one of the foremost uh, women Uh, who was uh, leading the movement for uh, the ordination of women as priests. And so he says that she has claimed that this equality of men and women is a Christian principle. But she's playing fast and loose with the term equality because, as he points out, she really is meaning interchangeability. He says, I do not remember the text in Scripture nor the fathers, that is, the apostolic fathers, the generation after the apostles, nor Hooker, who was one of the Puritan theologians, nor the prayer book, that is, the Anglican book of prayer, which asserts it. But that is not here my point. The point is that unless equal means interchangeable, equality makes nothing for the priesthood of women. And the kind of equality which implies that the equals are interchangeable, like counters or identical machines, uh, is among humans a legal fiction. It may be useful legal fiction, but in church we turn our back on fictions. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and summative figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures." When God made humanity, male and female, both were equally in the image and the likeness of God, but each had a different role. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. There are a lot of women I have heard teach the Bible that do a lot better than a lot of men that I have heard, but that doesn't make it right. Their parts aren't interchangeable. Uh, Each has a different role, so male and female were designed physically, soulishly, and spiritually to be adapted for their role. Now, does that mean that, um, that they can't be interchangeable in some areas? No, it doesn't. But it means that in key areas related to their divine purpose, there are these differences. So in Genesis 2.18, God is going to um, create the woman. He says, it is not good that man should be alone. And the word there for man means male, okay? It's often been said that when um, when there is a divorce or when there is uh, the death of a wife, that uh, women grieve, men replace. And I think it goes back to this reality is that God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And this is the word etzer. Now, what happens is in the language of the uh, feminists, is that this is a helper is a degraded role. It is a subordinate role. This means it's less significant, less important. But this is a real problem when you get into scripture for two reasons. Reason number one is that God is frequently called an Azer. There's only a couple of times when the word Azer, azer is used to refer to. Uh, a human being and the word used twice here in Genesis two in Genesis two20 uh, azer is used so Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a Azer a helper an assistant comparable to him now we have verses like deuteronomy thirty three twenty nine Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your azer. Yahweh is the shield of your azer, meaning he is the one who is your helper. He is the one who is your assistant. And he's the sword of your majesty. Psalm 70, verse 5, but I am poor and needy, David says, make haste to me, O God. You are my azer and my deliverer. So God is our azer. This is not a word that indicates something that is demeaning. It indicates a servant. And what does Jesus say about being a servant? That the greatest among you will, will be the servant of others. It, we're not out to demonstrate how superior we are. Hosea 13, 9, "O Israel, you are destroyed, but your azer is from me, God says. So the current argument states that men and women are equal and interchangeable. If they are interchangeable, then they are the same. No barriers exist. In other words, it basically means that if men and women are the same and the barriers are gone, then why not have two men married? Why not have two women married? It doesn't matter because these barriers are artificial to assert that males and females are equal in the sense of interchangeability denies that which is of their essence and thus destroys their significance. The, The man is the leader. He's designed a certain way by God. But if you take that away from him, then you destroy his significance. The woman is designed by God a certain way in terms of both her soul and in terms of uh, the way she is physically, everything is designed for those functions that God lays out at the beginning, and um, and so you destroy their significance. I mentioned last time about a women's studies liberal, liberal, hyper liberal women's study professor at uh, University of Connecticut who made it her point to tell the Christians in her group that if they continued to believe. Uh, what their pastors told them, then they would never discover who they really are. The reality is, if you don't pay attention to what the scripture says as a man or as a woman, you will never be what God intended you to be. Men need to learn what biblical manhood is. And women need to learn what biblical womanhood is. And then lastly, the point I made last time, By changing something's essence, you change what it is, and in this case, you destroy its value. So the two questions are, are men and women equal, and are men and women interchangeable? And it's already 8.35, so I will stop on the same slide I stopped on last time, but I went back and studied a lot more and put a whole lot more into the review and this section. And so we will come back And what I will remind you of is that the quote I used a couple of weeks ago, uh, that the goal of paganism is androgyny. And this is exactly what happens when you start destroying the distinctions between men and women. And I have a number of quotes that that's, that's what it does is it, it's moving in their ideal way to a sexless androgyny. And that's paganism. It destroys all the barriers. So it, it's gonna cre- it just creates complete havoc in, in a culture or a civilization. But God is still in control. And God is still the one who is moving history towards its conclusion, even though we look around us as Christians and we see this paganism just absolutely fragmenting our culture. Take the time over the next two or three months and read not only judges but go read first and second kings and first and second chronicles and it's happened again and again and again all through history because this is always the battle between those who worship the Creator. And those who worship the creation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to work our way through your word and understand what it means and what it implies for the way we should look at reality. Not being conformed to the world, uh, not being friends with the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Help us to work our way through what the scripture says to be biblical in our understanding.